Badger State Banner, Black River Falls, Wisconsin, 2 July 1891. Mrs. John Larson, wife of a farmer living in the town of Troy, drowned her three children in Lake St. Croix during a fit of insanity. Her husband, on finding her absent from the house, began a search and found her on the lake shore. Two of her children lying in the sand dead. The third could not be found. Mrs. Larson imagines that devils pursue her. Badger State Banner, 18 June 1891. The motto of the high school graduating class of 1891 was Standing with Reluctant Feet Where the Brook and the River Meet. Kite and Mr. Boyd were brothers by the same mother and different fathers, and therefore by nature they were alike, but were also dislike. They were bound to one another as one, as the moon to the earth, as snow to rain, as sea to river, as death to life, and yet while born of the one womb, they were as strangers to one another. Indeed, they had not known each other when they were children. That is another story to tell. Here it is offered in explanation, important because without it even those who knew them face to face should not understand the affinity. They should know them by their differences, but they were always to be found with one another. Mr. Kite was tall and skinny and melancholy. Mr. Boyd was short and fat and sanguine. Mr. Kite spoke with a contralto voice, a voice that was frequently silly and shrill when he was excited. Mr. Boyd spoke basso, a voice that commanded attention whenever he spoke, though his appearance did not. No one knew them to be brothers except Tollet, and puzzling once told, no one could be certain who was the eldest, but if twins, two could not be more dislike. Because of their striking differences, but also because of the fact that when you saw one, you generally also saw the other, it was apologized that no one called them by their surnames or their first names, which were not known at any rate. Rather, they were nicknamed Even and Odd, a paired set like a couple of dice, if ever there was one. They hunted white-tailed deer for logging camps. They sold the cookie, their meat, 
and tanned the buckskins for the added profit. Even, whose sense of smell was enormous owing to his enormous nose, was the better hunter of the two and famous for it. Odd was his better in dressing deer quickly, if even hung the carcasses so that he could reach it. Odd was masterful at tanning the hide, and he carved beautiful objects out of antlers. Odd also made the medicine for the winter woes, that despondency peculiar to farmers and farmer wives who lived in these northern climes, which sometimes led to death by hanging oneself or eating lye, and or generally making misery the daily meal out of life. He bottled powders of dried antler velvet in an ambiguous distillation of uncertain liquors. That of the young buck being more potent than of the older brought a premium, and was specially packaged under his handwritten label with faux gold-leaf ink, the odd remedy. When really good, it gave a giddy feeling when imbibed in a diluted infusion, increased the power of the loins, made a woman want to have child, and helped the couple occupy the wintry dark duration in a pleasurable happiness like Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden during the intervals of that oft-unmentioned time between tending fruits of this or that important tree and talking to God. One winter, in the early 90s, snow fell heavily across all the northwest camps and made hunting hard and logging harder. Ten feet fell one day, then ten more. Then came a driving sleet and coated it thickly, then another storm of heavy snow that blew monstrously huge and flurried wildly, crazily whipping and whirling, downscrewing and upsucking, sprawling, splashing, dashing, deviling and dazzling. For days and days it howled horribly like a ho-dog in a leg trap. It growled and snarled nastily in the stovepipes and at the door jams like wobble cats wanting to get in like moaning widows wanting whatever it is they want, like a babe with insufferable colic. Then it turned cold, so cold that the ears of the oxen were frostbit, and teamsters put their own caps on them, so cold that no one ventured beyond the door, and the newspapers in the following weeks told tales of those who did, who lost in the blear of snowy hurricane froze where they stood, a few yards from their houses, unseen, unanswered, in the wind and the horror. Those several days, even and Odd had stayed in the camp, because Odd said he saw it coming in the sunset that had been so fierce. Looking downhill from the bull's cabin to the end of the skid row, he saw its mean and terrible red rage glare on the river which, not yet iced over, was choppy with the sludgy cold water that would soon get strangled as ice collected and reached across from each bank to grasp the throat of it. They stayed with the jacks huddled in the bunkhouse, nursing the furnaces against the windy blizzard. During the blizzard, Odd carved antlers. Even cleaned and oiled his rifle, a Spencer repeating rifle which he had inherited from his father, who had fired it 
at a maniacal onslaught of Alabama rebels at Gettysburg when he was a private in the 9th Brigade of the Michigan Regiment, and who had also credibly told him that with this very rifle he had fired the very last hostile shot of the war of the rebellion before the surrender at Appomattox. His father swore it was true, and since he had lost an arm to cannon, no one dared dispute it, least of all even. Even considered the matter a point of pride, and would fight any man that disputed it. The Spencer Repeater shot fifty-four caliber, copper-jacketed, rim-fire bullets from a seven-bullet tube magazine loaded in the butt of the rifle. A good marksman could accurately and lethally fire all seven bullets in ten seconds, though he must eject the shell and cock the hammer for each shot. Even was a very good marksman. Everybody took the opportunity to boil the lice out of their clothes and bed linen and hung the washing to dry on ropes strung across cabin. Sitting in their long johns, most then idled, darning socks and mittens, sewing up rents in pant legs and shirts, playing cards and checkers, whittling goads for the loggy oxen who pulled the two-ton sleds of logs. Some sang songs. Others played accordion boxes, and some clapped along. The smell of feet and sauerkraut and defecations was overwhelming if you could get past the smoke and soot that often blew back out of the stovepipe when the wind hit it right. Day or night could not be told, and there was no use venturing into the storm, not even for an outhouse. The cookies tried to keep the path under the roofed breezeway between the cookie shanty and the bunkhouse, cleared of snowdrifts, but often waited to shovel out until they needed to bring over food. The men ate on their bunks rather than at the long tables and benches in the frigid mess hall, preferring to keep this place roasting with its stoves and not go outside for anything or any reason. Odd spent those days just carving one antler, not sawing it into smaller pieces as for knife handles or pipes or making buttons, but using the whole length of one, the base and the branch and the points of it, to make a chronicle relief, he carved Genesis in it. It displayed at the base how God's spirit moved the amorphous waters of creation by a rising formation from which animals and plants splashed, from which man emerged upon the curving branch. Then in sculpture at the first antler cluster of points, a tableau, the supplicant Eve in poignant reach for the fatal temptation from the satanic serpent entwining the leafy tree of knowledge. And at the terminus of the antler, cut flush so that it rests on the tabletop, a triumphant Lucifer plunging feet first back to Hades, his torso submerging into the tabletop, twisted, straining against his fall to look back up, to reach back at, the last cluster of antler points ascending just above and escaping his grasp, where a naked Adam and Eve, embracing in fear, are cast out of Eden in their shame by the archangel Michael with a lofted flaming sword. 
The night that he finished carving the flaming sword, the storm subsided. Even went out to look and found the skies dramatically clear, as if the lid had been lifted off. The Milky Way spilled across a moonless black sky like a spangling highway of stars and glory, and near the apex, just to his right, the North Star was fixed and bright. They would try north, even told Odd. Even woke in the dawning light and fully dressed, took his rifle to the cookie shanty and sat at the long table for breakfast and coffee alone. Some drinking on the last night before starting work again left some men still snoring and dead out of mind. Odd got up when he heard others stoking fires with logs tossed loudly in the stoves. Odd found Even already fed and ready to go and impatient. He said that the deer, having bedded during the storm, would be hungry, would be moving. It was yet just late November, and the doe were rutting and the bucks would be seeking them. There would be high traffic. He said he expected a lot of kills today. They went due north of the camp into the white pine stand which was reserved for later harvests, even following his nose. On their snowshoes, on the loft of new deep snow, the scent of the bucks was muffled, but even could smell one buck from another, his age, his temperament distinctive to him, as he moved in solitary determination toward the does and he could smell the different scents of does, which were mingled as they gathered in groups with their yearlings. They went for the bucks, and the older buck particularly, because as large as 300 pounds they were meatier, though not tender like the yearling, had a large hide and a rack of six or eight points. The winds of the blizzard and its aftermath had shed the snow from the trees, had torn the dead man from their tops and dropped them upright into the snowfall, piercing its iced crust, and whisking the finer crystal snows to dunes swirled beneath the trees, winds bared the open grounds where a blinding sheen flared in the sunlight before them. Beneath the crust, because the snow had first been so heavy and wet, the pack was firm. Their tread broke, but bore them over the crust. The frost air burred their nostrils when inhaled. Their fingertips stung, their cheeks numbed. 
Though Even could smell them on the light breath of a northerly wind, neither Even nor Odd saw any sign of deer until they came out of the northern stand and into an expanse of an iced lake which wind had swept clear of snow. There, amongst the break of sumac edging the lake, was sign of bedding does and yearlings. And near the wind-swept shore, on frozen ground, even pointed to the scrapings of a buck, fresh with his urine, and the potent rubbings of tarsal glands, his mark. Odd could smell it, too, it was so strong. Track showed crossing the lake. Even in Odd felt uncertain of crossing, for, though very cold now, it had been milder in weeks before, the ice may not hold them. It cracked distantly, and echoed like thunder, as they stood a third of the way across the open lake, and decided to circle the edge of the lake rather than hazard the chance of falling into icy water. They found the track on the other side, and found where the buck had bounded into snow following doe and yearlings. Odd squatted there. He knew it would not be far. Even went forward slowly and silently. It was a fortunate wind. It was a fortunate track. Fifteen minutes later, Odd heard the crack of the rifle. He heard it four times rapidly. He followed the sound and came upon Even with the kill. A buck killed at a quarter away, a doe killed at broadside, and a yearling beside her shot in the neck. They set about to dress the deer. It would take them the rest of the day to do this, and to haul the carcasses back to the camp in two separate trips, where Odd would skin them and take his six-point antlers. There would be stakes tonight. After killing, Even would not talk. It was his way, holding a solemn thought, almost a regret, but his feeling was rather more frightened. Though he had killed much and often, the departure of the soul of the deer, the extinguished eyes, always chilled him and gave him over to thought of his own death. But like a delight that he cannot taste enough, he was drawn to its repeated witness. It was not that he did not understand what he saw, but that it was ineffable, and by seeing it again he craved to express it, but it was lost the moment he witnessed it, gone with the life that he took. After killing, even was constipated and grouchy for several days. He would be like this now for more than a week, until they had hunted all the quadrants of the camp. Odd tanned his hides with the urine of the camp chamber pots and other necessaries from the cookie. He usually gave the cookie a hide for his trouble. A hide could bring five or six dollars in those days. The yearling's hide actually was the softer of those that he cured and would make good gloves and so would bring a premium in trade at the right establishment. The next day they went north again, following the path that they made before, which now slouched in the snow, 
It was easygoing as far as they'd gone before, where they found the carnage of their kill, blood having eaten the snow to the ground where the deer had been hung. Whether by this outrage to them or otherwise, the deer had fled. Even's sense of smell failed him. The winds were hectic and kept the deer on edge and made them move distractedly so that Even got turned about trying to track them. Even and Odd were exhausted by midday thrashing the deep snow and gave up and went back to camp. That evening, with cramping in his guts, Even went to the outhouse to try to avoid himself. It was useless. It was always useless. He knew it would be. He sat there, and his great nose took up the gases from the sum of defecations and urinations collected below him. And they came up like a cloud of voices out of the shithole beside him, and they said to him this, You lean fellow, don't you know we know you when you come for us? Don't you think we smell you? Don't you think we hear you? If you want me fat and ready, mother or child, you must follow the river. That way you will find me. But if you kill me when you are unclean, I will kill you when you touch me. If you are unclean, I will kill you if you kill me. Remember this. Remember. While Saturday nights or Sundays are reserved for bathing in the camp, even went back to the cabin still constipated and boiled water on a stove and poured it over shovels of snow he had put into the bathing tub to make a bath and stripped to his skin, skin white as a fish belly, and bathed solemnly and slowly while the jacks looked on and muttered. Odd, for his part, was used to Even's peculiarities while he hunted, he knew these superstitions could not be reasoned with, and therefore forbore attention to any manifestation or concern for the ridiculous constipation that tormented his brother. In his opinion, these were self-induced and self-indulged, and he knew you can change a person only as much as a person changes himself, and that is to say, you can change him nothing. So he did not try nor did he comment, nor did he think about it, but carved his antlers in splendid self-absorption. Next day, Even led Odd down the skid road to the river, watching out for the ox and sleds bearing tons of logs, which, aided by the water slopped on the ruts by the sprinklers, went slick and slippery on the ice and could, if not carefully managed, get away from the teamsters. Sometimes sleds killed ox teams that slipped beneath them. Logs Long as ship masts, colossal as the columns of J.P. Morgan's bank, 
were piled up three and more stories high along the shore for half a mile, on top of which the catty man strode in spiked shoes and handled logs with his gillery as they were swung over top on the boom, pushing and rolling them to abut one another, lighter to be tumbled into the river in a crash when the spring run comes. Cribs of such logs held the heaps in place, straining up by the weight of it. And more than once, even an odd had seen a man or two smash like tomatoes under the collapse of such a pile of logs. So a humble man always walked in front of this wall of death, like you did in a great holy cathedral where dread was merely spiritual and judgment was not as eminent. Though it would have done no good to escape it, they walked as far away as they could from those huge log piles. Even stepping onto the ice of the river itself, which, not fully frozen, steamed where the channel hurled, steely, swift, and deathly. Even said they would not go back this way if they had any luck with deer, but would try the gig trail above the banks and behind these piles, where the river pigs run when the river is high and the logs are afloat and racing even turned into the woods at an abandoned skid and went uphill into the slashed forest. They looked for sign amidst the stumps and slashings of the trees that lay like unburied dead everywhere. The sight of it would appall an Indian, and truly broke the heart of John Muir, who was born near this county. If this had been the twentieth century, you would have said an atom bomb had been dropped or a comet exploded, nothing for miles remained in standing, nothing. But the devastation was not his concern, nor observed, even smelled the deer. He could not see them, but he could smell them. An odd followed him, stepping where even stepped to make his own passage in the snow less arduous. Odd was still looking at the footprints he wanted to follow, when he heard the rifle report twice and saw that even had hit two bucks that had faced each other. One was hit broadside, the other hit quarter away. Making to run, Odd thought, but too late. It was astonishing good luck, astonishing marksmanship. The next day, even and Odd took the gig trail down river as far as the last logging camp, many miles down river, where in just one winter past this same company and many of its sticklers had been and had taken its green gold right down to the ground before moving up to the present place. There the weeds overtook the roofs and the doors caved in or were knocked in by bear, and it looked a desolate and depressing memory of mankind while across the dangerous river even could smell the deer, and at times a flash of white tail showed what he might have shot on this side. He never got a shot. It was a useless day, and it was dark before they got to the logging camp and the warm bunkhouse. Even did not eat, 
but in the darkness went again to the outhouse, hoping to void himself. He sat there, uselessly, his great nose, taking up the gases from the sum of defecations and urinations collected below him, and up, like a cloud, they came, voices out of the shithole beside him, and said, Listen, lean fellow, do you think you can find me by the river once you have killed me? Do you think I do not know what you think? If you kill me, you must share me. How can you profit in what you do not own? You have said enough, even replied. And without irony in his mind that he spoke with shit in a shithouse, he got up, still constipated, and went back to the bunkhouse and took the money that the cookie gave him for the two bucks and, dividing it, placed it randomly on several bunks whose owners, seeing this unexpected generosity from where they sat crowded at the stoves, idly picking their traveling dandruff, clambered up to collect the money, knocking back stools while their bunkmates and everyone else, too, got in a hurry and fought them for a better reach. In the racket and mayhem, Odd almost said something to Even, but the ill luster of Even's eye struck him as stranger than ordinary superstition. He had seen this once before when it ended in a frothing seizure. So he let it go, contented that he had already taken his share of the money at any rate. The next morning before dawn, when the chore boy came to rouse the bullwhackers, Even was already dressed and ready to go, and Odd had to wake himself from the dead and dress like a house on fire to get out and swill a coffee before Even was out to the woods, bearing due south. This part of the woods had been the first to clear, though it skirted and somewhat unlawfully intruded upon the Menominee tribe nearby, whose memory, ironical to their name, seemed not strong enough to establish this theft in a white man's court, which court, to be fair, would have denied the claim anyway, but whose braves nonetheless sometimes singly appeared at a distance to watch the jacks cut the trees to the ground. Solitary as a conscience, they silently stood and witnessed what was done. No witnesses saw even that day as he soldiered through the snow. He was like an engine with a full head of steam, and he knew where he was going and was as unswerving as if he had been fixed to a rail himself and went deep and straight and clear out of sight and out of hearing. So, when an hour and a half later Odd finally caught up with Even, he had already dressed one of the five deers that he must have shot in a frenzied round of bullets spinning like a bobbin to let fly a hail of shots around him, a full magazine, like he'd been surrounded by a menace of deer and attack. There was blood and dropped deer in a circle all around him, and one buck, strung up before him, bled out and gutted, its entrails slithered hot into the snow below it. They worked together all that day, and it took all the day, and part of the night, 
to bring all the carcasses back to the camp. And when the cookie paid them, Odd took the money and told Even that he would hang on to it for safekeeping. Even said nothing. In fact, he'd said nothing all day. But he went straight to the outhouse, without eating, to try to void himself. He sat there uselessly, his great nose filled with the gases of other men's defecations and urinations. And the voices came out of the shithole beside him and said, You stupid, lean fellow. If I die, you die. If you eat me, I eat you. Do you know who I am? He sat there uselessly for an hour listening to the gases. Sometimes they spoke in words, sometimes they spoke in other messages. Odd came to get him and found he had frostbite on his buttocks and could have lost his sack in manhood if he hadn't sat there much longer. He had him soak his buttocks in a tub with lukewarm water and then rubbed oleo on the cheeks when he got out. Odd said, You gotta stay in tomorrow. Maybe a couple of days. You got that? Even looked forlorn and dejected and nodded his head. And Odd put him to bed on the bottom bunk, tucking him in like he was a child. Odd was glad that this was finally over and took the top bunk that night. The next morning, Even rose before dawn again, before the chore boy came in banging about. And Odd woke up, loggy-headed, only after the others were going out the door and the sun had just risen. Odd looked to the bunk below him and was surprised to find Even gone. He had thought the worst was over. He found on Even's pillow this note, scribbled in pencil on an advertisement for suppositories. No murderer shall eat. No woman that bleeds in her womb. No woman that sees her husband dead. Nor shall an undertaker eat. It is forbidden. But when the louse bites, it shall eat. Near noon... A posse of jacks came back in a ruckus with even tied up at his hands. They had his rifle and claimed he had shot to death a bucker 
as he stood on the horizon of a hill by his tree. It was a clear shot. It was a clear sight. He could not have been mistaken. He shot him to the purpose of murder. Odd tried to summon a lawyer from the nearest town, but it took three days for him to arrive, and the Jacks were mind-set on retribution, for the bucker killed was a popular Jack, and even got stranger and stranger in the makeshift cell where they kept him. So, at a midnight on which most had gotten crazy drunk, they mocked up a trial and hung him dead from a hoisting boom in the yard. When he died, they said, he crapped his pants. It's all over. It's all over. And in the poor room. The poor, the lame, the blind. 